Hi there, it's Amy. This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. But before we begin the podcast, I just have a, a favor, really. And that's to subscribe to Democracy in Color on iTunes. This is the year that we must talk about how race and social justice are shaping our politics. And so we don't want you to miss any of the upcoming episodes featuring our best and our brightest. So thanks for subscribing and enjoy the show. Do we participate in a politics of cynicism or do we participate in a politics of hope? But when we are together, we got power and we can make decisions. I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. We want to register to become first class citizens. In this episode, we're bringing you highlights from Steve Phillips' best-selling Brown is a New White cross-country tour. In this next segment, Steve is joined by CNN commentator Van Jones on the stage of the Ford Foundation in New York. There is no topic, I think, especially this year, that is a bigger deal than how we're going to deal with the demographic changes in the country. Uh, it is giving everybody fits uh, in, in politics and media and some of our families. Um, and it's good sometimes to have somebody who has more than an opinion. Uh, I spend a lot of time talking to people who have opinions, uh, some of them better than others from my point of view. Um, but we're going to hear from Steve Phillips. You hear the words a lot from this election about uh, this existential threat. And I was, um, I, was, I was thinking the other day, I was like, what does that even mean? <laughs> right? And so I actually went to look up the, the definition of existential. And it is what, you, what it sounds like, that the, the question of the existence of an entity is at stake. And I really do actually believe that that is, in fact, what is before us in 2016 in the country and within both of the, of the political parties in terms of what direction we're going to move forward. And the fundamental question around the existence is, are we going, is the existence of America, is America going to be a white country or is it going to be a multiracial country? And so the existence of America as primarily and fundamentally and uh, initially a white country, that is what hangs in the balance in terms of existentialism in terms of the existence of what that concept is. And so from the time that the first English settlers set foot on this land in 1607, the definition and the understanding of this country has been as a white country. And you see that in the laws that the colonialists put forward in the uh, pre-Revolutionary War period. One of the very first laws created in the United States was the 1790 Immigration and Nationality Act, which says to become a U.S. citizen, you have to be a free white person. And that was good law until 1952, and it was the practice of this country until 1965. And so there are cases from the 1920s where Asians wanted to become U.S. citizens and went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, no, you can't, because the law says you have to be a white person. And so this notion around us being a white country is longstanding. And that all went up to, and that changed profoundly, when the world changed profoundly in 1965, where you had the civil rights movement cresting, you had the, particularly the Selma to Montgomery march, the Selma struggle, one of the things I didn't even fully appreciate in terms of all of what had happened at that time period was that after the Selma to Montgomery march, after the LBJ was moved or forced to give his speech introducing the Voting Rights Act and saying we shall overcome, the next day he gathered his top staff together and says, I want to do a whole bunch of things. And one of those was the Immigration and Nationality Act, which took down the whites-only sign on entry into the United States. And so from that time period, and this is why I try to root much of the historical context for my analysis in the civil rights movement and the 
Selma to Montgomery Mark and what, what March and what Dr. King was putting forward, the country has changed from 12% people of color in the 1960s to 38% today. And so this has been the profound demographic revolution, which is facing the country right now, and which also is making much more possible. And that my central argument in this book is that we now have a new majority coalition, a new American majority, where the cornerstones of that are the country's growing communities of color. And that those communities, in partnership with uh, progressive whites, who are a discounted and underappreciated element of the population, There's so much focusing on the conservative whites and the conservative white working classes, very little appreciation for the progressive whites. And I say in the book, can't we show them some love, right? <laughs> and so, but this, we have this majority. And so it was an, it's a majority which elected and then even more importantly, re-elected Obama. And so Obama got 5 million fewer white votes in 2012 and 2008 and still was able to win election because the composition of the country had changed so much. And so along with that majority and along with that new leadership and that new president and that new direction, we've had a whole bunch of public policy changes. We have universal health care. We have the uh, executive action for the dreamers. We have a whole different relationship with countries around the world and level of respect for all the different countries in the world. And the question is, what direction are we going to go in? What direction are we going to go in? This is what we faced in 2016 in terms of public policy and in terms of, dire of the direction around what the composition is. But I think it comes back to this question around this existential question. Are we going to be, move forward to fully embracing and becoming a multiracial country that celebrates and includes the full totality of the diversity of the country, or are we going to go back to actually being a primarily white country? And I do believe that that's the challenge that is faced for the country overall and for each of the political parties, and that we have this, this phrase and this hats in this election around make America great again. And so my question is, well, when exactly do they think America was great? <laughs> And what was the status of people of color and women and LGBT and uh, uh, religious minorities at that time? And so it's clearly an attempt to move back to a period where the central identifying principle of the U.S. was that this was primarily a white, male, heterosexual, Christian country. And that is on the table for people to vote on in this election. And so I think for the country, that is, hangs in the balance. Clearly, it's a question that the Republican Party has to grapple with. And then, very interestingly, they had, after the 2012 election, put forward this uh, growth and opportunity report, referred to, the, referred to as a Republican autopsy, where they said quite explicitly, we have to embrace and reach out to and include people of color. And they have done a lot in terms of elevating. Republicans have done more to elevate uh, statewide candidates of color than the Democrats have done, actually, over the past eight years. And yet then you have Trump coming in with a whole different direction. So they face their own existential challenge around what direction they're going to go. But it's also a question for the Democrats in that the, there is a very serious question, which is really the fundamental motivation for me to actually write this book around are the Democrats going to fully embrace enthusiastically and unapologetically the new American majority and the communities of color which comprise that? And I have a chapter in the book called uh, Blinded by the White. And it is this notion, because the country has been so fixated on and has so much had an obsession with prioritizing and giving preference to whites, that there's this disrespect for it. It's, a, it's the, I talk about old habits are hard to break. I mean, you don't get to a situation where 95% of the leading roles on television shows are white without active white preference. And given how bad TV is, you can't claim that it's meritorious, right, in terms of people having that. And yet this notion around who are the people who are talented, who are the people who have the capacity to lead, infects the progressive movement overall and the Democratic Party overall. And more, I've been doing this work where I'm really looking at the leadership of the progressive movement. So the, Obama's voters were 46% people of color. Yet the leadership of the progressive movement overall, the Democratic Party in particular, 
is still overwhelmingly white. And the more that I've been digging into this, I keep the phrase keeps coming back to my mind of apartheid. I mean, it really is almost an apartheid-like situation where all of the top leadership positions, with very few exceptions, are controlled by whites in a party that is nearly half people of color. And so this is the existential challenge facing the progressives and the Democrats. Are we, in fact, going to invest in, embrace, elevate, and promote the full diversity and people who have the expertise and the knowledge to be effective. And we're starting to see some of these, these changes take place in the society overall. I listened to an interview the other day with one of the, the head person for the show Empire, one of the top shows on television across the board. She says all of the writers are black. And they're all raised are black because they want an authenticity and they want a specificity that speaks to the audience. And then because they have that, that actually works. So that notion around the cultural competence that's necessary to be successful in a multicultural society starting to take place in different areas, but not taking place broadly in the progressive movement. We did an audit of Democratic Party spending in 2000, uh, looking at 2010, 2012, out of $500 million of contracts that were let, 97% of them went to white consultants in a party that's 46% people of color. And so the Democrats face this threat in the progressive movement overall. It's not just the Democrats. I think it's across the board. A lot of the Ford Foundation grantees, I think we all have to grapple with this in the philanthropic sector and social change sectors. What does that leadership look like and does it come from and are we elevating it? And now we go to Cleveland, Ohio, where Steve gave a talk at the Cleveland City Club. Back in the 1800s, there were signs, Irish need not apply. And my ancestors from Italy, you know, Italians were not allowed in Shaker Heights for, at some early on. To what degree do you see what's happening with people of color as kind of an extension or, or not an extension of what's already happened where it used to be that Irish and Italians were considered sort of outside of the fold, where now everybody would think of them as just white and wouldn't think anything about it? I think it's. I do think that that's taking place. Um, there's a the writer James Baldwin um, wrote a, uh, a collection of his works called The Price of the Ticket. In his intro essay, in an intro essay there, he says that the price of the ticket for the European immigrants was to become white, and so that that definitely has taken place. And you do frankly see it in different uh, regards, particularly in terms of uh, different elements of the uh, Latino and Hispanic community. In some segments, I uh, think of the Asian community, there's a desire to be treated in just that kind of mainstream fashion. The challenge is that you know, color is such a, so ingrained in terms of our society, in terms of the perceptions, in terms of a lot of the biases and prejudices. I mean, Dr. King talked about the numbers of synonyms for the word black versus the number of synonyms for the word white and what the connotations of those were, that this is very deep within the culture and psychology of the country around these color line, the color issues. So it's more difficult when you look that different to just be assimilated in. And so I think that that's going to be part of the challenge. And then, frankly, I think the hope would be that we would actually move to a point of not wanting to sublimate the distinctive pieces, but to embrace and validate and weave all that together. Can people talk the difference between a melting pot and a salad bowl, where it's all in there, but it's kind of mixed together, but you maintain the different um, uh, distinctive characteristics and the distinctive flavor of the various communities. As a Hawken alumni, uh, I'm, I'm sure I speak for the Hawken community, how proud we are of you and what you have become in your life. And I was just reminiscing to think 35 years ago, I used to sit in your small little TV room and watch you dip french fries into your uh, Frosty there. And we used to think you were kind of weird. But um, <laughs> but I just want to say just how impressed mm. and, and, and how happy we are with what you are trying to achieve. And, but on a serious note, my, my question is, I know your talk is the, the browning of America and, and the new states that would be these states to now look at as far as Texas and things of that nature. But right now, Ohio always seems to hold itself uh, around election time as being a very pivotal and important state. Mm -hmm. And before we were to, to move on from that, you know, what do you think or what would be your recommendation for Ohio specifically? Because it always comes down to that last night. And as always, we just never know which, which way we're going to swing. And, and I would love to have maybe a blueprint or some plan or just some advice from, from your perch point as to what Ohio could specifically do for 2016 and even now uh, with our, 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 our government, um, our, our, our governor election coming up. So maybe you could help with that. Right. 
Right. So back in high school, you didn't think I'd amount to much, did you? Right. <laughs> so, um, but um, no, Ohio remains one of still one of the bellwether states within the country, and it, in a lot of ways, interestingly, because Ohio is almost split right down the middle in terms of its electoral trends. Efforts in Ohio make a bigger difference because the margin is so small. And so if you can actually increase um, the participation, that has an impact. It's worth studying and understanding better what Obama did to be able to win here and that they increased significantly the African-American turnout in ways that really, if you read these uh, post-election books, shocked the Romney people and shocked Carl Rove, he watched his meltdown on election night. Um, he couldn't believe that was, was transpiring. But their models were wrong of how many people of color, that, how many African Americans people they thought would actually turn out. So this is really though, the, this is part of the challenge too, is that this work is, it's not, it should not just be episodic work. It should not be every four years in October we try to actually turn folks out. What is the civic engagement infrastructure and in, uh, involvement and leadership development that's going on around the clock? And so can we, and it's almost back to the civic club type of days, is that people who were a precinct leader on turning out for Obama, can they be supported to be civic leaders and getting people to the city council meeting or to be part of a block club? Or so you start to know who all of your neighbors are, you continue to have that relationship. So when election time comes around, you know who the folks are, you're not just returning out to them. So I think when I was meeting with um, State Senator Turner today, talking about how much has been preserved of the Obama infrastructure. And that, I think, is one of the biggest challenges I think that's something we can all think about doing, is how to actually sustain the activists, the organizers who get inspired and do this work between election cycles. So the extent that we're able to preserve that kind of infrastructure will enable, um, I think, us to continue to have the outcomes that we want to see. So I would like you to address the issue on a broader basis of the, uh, uh, so I'd say malapportionment of congressional districts and its impact on the progressive movement. Yeah, I really believe that redistricting is going to be the most important political fight of the next 20 years. And so that it's underappreciated how much with the Republican wave of 2010 taking over all these different state houses and then drawing the lines of 2011 has locked in a uh, undemocratic configuration of congressional districts. Democrats won more, more people voted for Democrats for Congress than voted for Republicans. But Republicans still have an 18-seat majority in the House. And that's just a configuration of redistricting and um, gerrymandering, frankly. So we've got, but I feel like that progressives were asleep at the switch. There's a lot of effort and a lot of around the census, get people signed up for the census, but very little resources, very little effort, very little organizing around then engaging in the actual drawing of the lines. And so we need to be vigilant and proactive around that. So it's seven years from now, so we should all mark it on our calendars that we've got to be engaged in that process. And the other thing to think about is, are there ways to also um, democratize the line drawing work? So we were able to pass a resolution and uh, a ballot measure in California that took it out of the hands of the state legislature. And so the lines were actually drawn by um, a, a, a neutral commission than just looking at the data and the numbers and not factoring in. And ironically, it's actually helped Democrats in California because you start to see how much the previous lines have been drawn to protect particular individuals. And they, didn't have a, they weren't as concerned about the overall configuration. It's like, don't mess with my individual district. I'm, not, I'm less concerned. But if you just take that personal consideration out, cut the lines according to what the data actually shows around what the demographics are like, you actually get better results. And so it's something to think about. I know there was an effort to actually try to get a, a, a commission here that was not successful in Ohio, but it's something to not give up on is that if you can actually have it be a more objective piece, um, then you can draw lines that reflect what is the actual composition. Because you're correct. In a state that's this divided, that's this close every presidential election, you shouldn't have a two-thirds majority of one party within the state legislature. That's not reflective of who's within the state. And I think it is worth engaging in that fight to be able to draw lines that are fair and reflective of who's within the state.
Looking at our uh, current Senate, they're uh, a little bit notorious for not being able to pass any bills at all. And uh, this is an issue that it seems like both uh, political parties are going to have to address. Do you see an area where we could start to compromise around this issue of colored voters and where both parties come together to create a mutually beneficial agreement that benefits both the political parties and the people that are voting? Uh, give me a minute. <laughs> I think, I mean, just quite frankly, I think that it is no accident that there are so many efforts to suppress the vote right now. Is that there's a very clear understanding that the more diverse the voting population becomes, the expectation is the worse that it's going to be for the Republicans. And so that is why you see these efforts to, you know, throw up all manner of legal roadblocks. I mean, one would think that this is a democracy, and that in a democracy you would want everybody to vote, and that we should be doing everything we can to encourage people to vote. And it was particularly maddening to me watching in Florida people standing in line for hours and hours and hours trying to actually be able to vote with the governor, his own constituents, not seeming to care that his people were going through that kind of difficulty because it was serving actually a political, uh, his political end. So it's going to be a challenge. I mean, I think the one thing that I, I could potentially think about is some of the folks who are actually trying to get ahead of this curve. Marco Rubio's of the world, you know, he tried to stake out this position around immigration reform, trying to do this piece around the, um, the poverty part. Can, some, can you look at some of those folks to be able to uh, partner? And I think they may, it would actually be in their interest to be seen within these communities as being concerned about the needs and about the interest. The other idea, the potential is out there, what I wonder is how much we can actually try to achieve common ground around the application of technology, right? When you go to the, the department store and you, can, you don't have to wait, you, can, you, you pull out your credit card and you can buy whatever you want to buy right then. So why is it so difficult to vote, right? If they can verify who you are when you want to you, you know, spend some money, why can't we verify right away who somebody is when we want them to actually vote? And I keep wondering, can we look at partnering with you know, Google and uh, Apple's of the world to be able to have that technological validation in ways that might cross um, some partisan uh, boundaries. Stacey Abrams, Georgia's House Minority Leader, joined Steve Phillips on stage in San Francisco at the Commonwealth Club. Take a listen. Democrats are often accused of taking African-American voters for granted, and we have also uh, given lip service to Latinos and not necessarily put the money behind that. Uh, what is it that Democrats are going to do wrong that will yield, or what will Republicans do right that will shift minority support from Democrats to Republicans? Well, it's going to be, what's fascinating about this election is that in many ways, the um, 2020 election has already begun. So it's not like Rubio went home to go home or Cruz went home to go home. I mean, they're anticipating that Trump will lose and they're positioning themselves for 2020. And I have been most concerned from a, as a Democrat about Rubio for a long time because he is able to articulate the immigrant experience in ways that touches people and can actually attract the support of people of color. And if you look at the, the autopsy the, that the Republicans did after the 2012 election, it is, it's 100 plus pages, it's very detailed, it's very specific, go to immigration and nationalization ceremonies and be present there, elevate staff of color. By contrast, the Democrats put out a seven page report 10 months late that the Washington Post referred to as political pablum. Right, and so the Republicans were actually on course to be able to make inroads into the communities of color, and that was the plan, right? Bush is married to a Mexican woman, There's, you know, mixed race kids. Rubio has been this mix, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, they were lifting up a rainbow of people trying to make the, and that was the plan until Trump had a different plan, right? <laughs> it's interesting being able to do the, you know, take the time in the book to do the research so one of the things that was most illuminating to me was 
what is possible by moving from a discussion around income inequality to wealth inequality. And that the top 1% in the country, people making 13, who have $13 million in assets, collectively have $26 trillion in assets. So that if we could actually institute a wealth tax, not just on income, but tax that wealth at 2%, that's $500 billion a year. Think tanks have calculated what it would take to lift everybody out of poverty, and it's about $270 billion. So we could end poverty just by asking the top 1% and nobody else to pay 2% of that wealth tax, and the historic return on the stock market since 28 is 10%. So we're not even saying that we're going to make them poorer, just saying get richer a little slower, and we could actually end poverty. And I do think that that's the kind of thing that people could um, respond to in terms of the public policy debate. Do you think that Hillary Clinton gets that message? Uh, I emailed someone for people with that section of my book. <laughs> um, uh, I don't think, either, I mean, I don't know, uh, not at the moment. And then I think, you know, I even think that to the extent that Bernie talks about inequality, that it's mainly income inequality. And so I think that hoping that we can push him to lift up the issue around wealth inequality more. Um, so we're not there yet, um, but I do think that the, it's, we're further along in a progressive spectrum around talking about inequality than we have been historically. And I think that there are, and actually the reason, I'm not kidding, I did email some of Hillary's uh, people that I know. The reason I did is because she actually did give us, I thought it was a very good speech about um, addressing racial inequality in the problems. And she was talking about a $125 billion plan and program to be able to address racial inequalities in our society, which I think is the right problem to be focusing in on. So I was trying to point them to wealth inequality as a potential solution to fund that type of a program. Uh, staying on that lines, and I'm taking a few of the questions from the audience. Uh, that first question uh, regarding Re Secretary Clinton was from the audience. And another one is, how effective has President Obama been in achieving the racial equity goals that you, you've described? That's a good, it's a complicated question. And so, um, for one, I don't think we, any, I don't think we should minimize, and I don't think we have sufficiently appreciated, and we may not be able to appreciate for a decade or so, the cultural, sociological, psychological impact of having this president and this first family in the White House for eight years, and what it means for all of the children within this country who have grown up to see this man and this first family in the White House is incalculable. And so that's a very significant piece of the social change piece. It doesn't get um, credited enough. Um, another thing that doesn't get credited enough is um, he put the first Latina on the Supreme Court, right? And so that's never been, you know, so the other things he's done which have been significant um, that have not been appreciated, right? So I think that there's that. Um, I do wish they had gone faster, harder when they first went in, in 2009. I think there, I feel there was too much effort to uh, try to you know, work across the aisle and win over Republicans and try to be able to be reasonable with people who were not, who were not reasonable. And we could have done more. We could have moved healthcare quicker. We could have uh, passed immigration uh, reform if we had gone more aggressively um, in, in 2009. So that, I think, is the, the primary disappointment. But I think since his reelection, He's actually been much more aggressive and bold in trying to move in these different directions. Even you know, the recent thing, like in the past couple of days, around overtime pay. I mean, they're doing a lot of things now that are moving us more rapidly in the direction of equality. Um, so I think that that's um, all to the good. Well, you founded the first super PAC to support President Obama's 2008 election. And you've been instrumental in supporting groups across the country who have been in bits and pieces and not necessarily always with the same mindset, been trying to live out the ethos of Brown is the New White. Can you talk a little bit about those programs that you've been the most impressed by? Uh, you spoke about what uh, President Obama has accomplished in recent years, but talk a little bit about how both the work that you've been doing and certainly his leadership, how that has influenced those community groups and those states that are starting to really organize and galvanize these communities of color? Um, 
Well, one of those states is Georgia. <laughs> right? So people don't appreciate that Obama lost Georgia in 2008 by 250,000 votes without contesting it. And it's a state that has 900,000 eligible non-voting people of color. Um, and, uh, and it's not, you know, uh, uh, this is genuine, genuine, sincere. I mean, Stacey organized it around the New Georgia Project. It's registered tens of thousands of African-American voters um, in 2014, um, which had not been done before. And so that whole uh, framework, which is really, I mean, I came into politics with the Rainbow Coalition. Jesse Jackson used to talk about um, David versus Goliath, but there are all these rocks lying around. And he re referenced that the rocks lying around were the eligible non-voting people of color. Um, Texas has four million eligible non-voting people of color in a state where Democrats lose by 600,000 to 900,000 votes. So groups like Texas, or Texas Organizing Project, um, do a lot of the underground work. And they did the underground work to turn out the vote in Houston that actually elected the African-American mayor of Houston. So that's an, an example of that type of work. Um, you know, I've been happy to su support and try to get off the ground an effort um, called Inclusive, which is a, a talent bank for people of color to be able to place them in different campaigns. So that people keep saying, well, we can't find anybody. We're like, well, they're right here, right? <laughs> and so, um, so these are some of the things we've been trying to actually um, identify and move forward, um, but sadly it's not sufficiently invested in and not a high enough priority yet for the overall um, progressive movement. But the talent is there, the leadership is there, we just need more investment to, in those right leaders doing that kind of work. Well, you talk about uh, Ambassador Andy Young's uh, very famous comment about smart-ass white boys, uh, and uh, I always like being able to say that. <laughs> Talk to me about the programs that you see those organizations and those groups trying to implement that are well-intentioned but wrong-headed. Um, so for the record, if I say fewer smart-ass white boys, <laughs> and footnote five of chapter five of my book does say that some, uh, some of my best friends are white guys. So yeah. I just want to be <laughs> on the record about that. Um, but, I mean, unfortunately, we're seeing it right now in this election that the strategies and the plans that are being implemented in terms of how to defeat Trump are primarily designed to be able to, to focus in on and change the minds of and influence moderate to conservative whites. And so there, and what's, one of the things that's fascinating that people do not at all appreciate um, in terms of this political analysis is that there just are not that many swing voters left. And that there was a significant study that looked at the voting survey data f for the past 60 years. And in the swing voters are at an all-time low. And it's 5% of the entire electorate, which is about 6 million people from the uh, 2012 election. There are 7.6 million newly eligible people of color since 2012. There are 26 million eligible non-voting people of color in 2012. So which, where are you going to focus your time, energy, and resources? And this is actually back to your earlier point about kind of non-person of color attract voters of color. 79% of people of color have voted Democratic since 1976 on average. So yes, people of color will vote in that direction. So where do you put your time, energy, and resources? But most of the people running Democratic and progressive politics right now are white, almost exclusively. I mean, in a party that is 46% people of color, if not more, 46% of Obama's voters are people of color, and yet almost all the people controlling the large institutions, the large organizations, and the large budgets in this election are white. And so I have, have taken to referring to it as a near-apartheid situation we have in the progressive movement. And so the plans that have been laid, even publicly disclosed around from the independent side and the different programs people are going to be doing and the different super PACs, they, the budgets add up to around $200 million. The vast majority of that is to, are negative ads about how Trump is a bad guy, which is, just again, designed to change the minds of the white swing voters where that money could be put into communities, hiring staff people, organizing people of color to make sure we turn out in large numbers. So the mindset, and this is exactly what Andy Young was talking about, that he was trying to tell Mondale's people, 
the benefit of his experience, having worked with Dr. King, having done voter mobilization, had got elected to Congress himself through a voter mobilization of African-American programs, that that's where the priority and the resources should go. But they were, you know, uh, smart-ass consultants who were like, no, we're going to run these TV ads. And that's what they did, and, that, and then they lost. 30 years later, we're still running these TV ads. In your book, you do a very, I think, eloquent job of framing out why this matters. And you hearken back to your parents' experience of buying their first house. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and then link that to why you do what you do today? Um, the story is that my parents moved to Cleveland Heights, Ohio in um, 1964. And it was an all-white neighborhood. My brother wound up being the first black student in that elementary school. And they could not buy their home. They were, the seller would not sell it to them because they were black. And so he had to get a white lawyer, Byron Krantz, to buy the house, deed it over to them. Um, and so that, and then and I only actually recently learned a lot of the details of this. Actually, I learned election night 2012. My dad was in town telling us more about the details of that. And a neighbor across the street who was not happy about it said, uh, called a meeting around with the other neighbors to say, what, you know, so what are we going to do about Byron Krantz? So are we going to string him up? And so this neighbor was very upset, called it in, the, in some kind of cosmic balancing. My brothers and I became best friends with his kids, actually, <laughs> when we were growing up, actually. Um, but I think... So they were always, um, uh, it was the milieu of the civil rights movement, right? So my parents took me to see Martin Luther King when I was three years old when he came to Cleveland. Um, there were all these biographies and Life magazine, Look magazine about the civil rights movement around the house. So, and that's even come of the discussion and the talk about my, my mom and whatnot. So that was always part of the milieu and um, which led me to, I mean, I read all the biographies of Martin Luther King in my elementary school um, library. So I think that, and then, you know, my grandfather was a minister. And so I think between these two different things of the religious tradition, the social justice tradition, that those have been deeply embedded within me. And so I think that really is the work that I've been trying to do in my life is to really be able to carry on that struggle, be able to advance that type of um, effort to make society more just. And I think I'm, I am, like I say, I'm quite literally a child of the civil rights movement. And that has shaped my viewpoint, my outlook, um, my sense of both what's possible and well as what's necessary to do. Bernie Sanders has taken a great deal of flack about his dismissal of Southern states uh, in the primary process. Uh, but his analysis echoes the spending decisions of most campaigns. Uh, can you talk a bit about, let's say that you tomorrow become the czar of campaign finance and campaign funding for Democrats. We have anointed you and you have a billion dollar budget. How do you divide up the money? Give me categories and specifics. So the Democrats uh, in 2012 spent $2.7 billion at the, just at the federal You only level. get a billion. <laughs> so, all right, well, I tried. <laughs> um, so at a fundamental level, you need to look at uh, where do your votes come from? And so, and then your budget needs to reflect that. So 46% of the Democratic votes are uh, people of color. It may be more. The electorate was... 29% uh, eligible voters, people of color in 2012, it's going to be 31% this year. So it could be even closer to half of the voters. And then you have to allocate between mobilization of your supporters, and that, again, 80% of people of color tend to vote Democratic, and then persuasion of those who you, who you may need to persuade, if you need to persuade anybody. Um, so, uh, and then it's not cheap, so you have to invest in actually organize, and then the reality of the country, because there's so much uh, history of inequality and racial inequality, that people of color's lives are more difficult, and so that's a, the, the barriers to get out to vote, to participate in the electoral process are larger, um, and that happens when you have fewer resources. So 
I don't know, two-thirds, one-third, two-thirds staffing, mobilization, people in the community. I, mean, I was at a national faith uh, uh, gathering a few weeks, a, few, a couple months ago, and I was thinking, why isn't there a civic engagement coordinator for every black church in the country to make sure that every person in that church is registered to vote, that they know when the election is, that they're actually supported to actually get out to the polls? Um, so fundamentally, and I would even go further, I'll go 80-20, that if the premise is correct, that there's only 5% swing voters, period, and that the key to victory is turning our people out to vote, that I would put most of the money into an integrated plan around, which is largely staff-driven, of having human beings on the ground, in the neighborhoods, in the communities, and knocking on doors, doing calls, identifying people, getting them out to vote, reinforced with some media around letting people know when the election is, clarifying the issues, making sure people realize that the, what the stakes are and what the potential is of the election. Um, and then I would do some targeting that um, swing vote population, but I wouldn't go more than 20, 25%. So you've allocated a billion dollars. Where does the ground staff come from? Where do you find these people? Is it the DNC? Is it the candidate? Is it somewhere else? How do you, how do you actually staff this program? So, oh, so linked to that is I would take 2% and put it into a permanent year-to-year -year fund that is, helps to uh, identify, recruit, and train activists and organizers uh, across the country. So there are, there are a lot of, uh, I remember when I was at, um, Stanford back in the day, one of the black staff people said that, um, says every African-American staff person on this campus is underemployed. And that has always stuck with me, you know, for all these different years. So there's lots of talent. Uh, this reminds me of the um, Louis Gossett Jr. at this quote back in the 80s. says that there's plenty of good roles for black actors. They're just being taken by white actors, right? <laughs> and so there is a lot of talent that's actually out there that uh, people who are working on campaigns, who have been part of campaigns, who have been actually part of the mix, but they're not um, validated and elevated and like blessed or laid hands on as like the brilliant people or the people who actually should be you know looked to or and in, in, in invested in. So there needs to be an inventory of who is within the different campaigns who and who has done this work, um, and that's a larger pool of people than people appreciate, but they're not. Um, respect or is seen in that way. And so there are very few uh, people of color who are given the chance to run a statewide campaign. And it gets to be a cyclical situation. And so you haven't run a statewide campaign, so you can't run a statewide campaign. But how do you actually break into that? Like no one's born running statewide campaigns. Right? So at some point, somebody has to give, give it a chance. Um, so but Cory Booker looked to Adiso Demisi, who had not run a statewide campaign, but was a talented political operative. It says, come run my U.S. Senate campaign, which he did, and Corey won, and that puts Adisu in that category now. There are a lot of Adisus out there. And so the work has to be done to identify, attract, recruit, and put those people in leadership positions. And then, so Hillary, to her credit, in Nevada, took Emmy Ruiz, who's a young Latina, and made her in charge of Nevada. Not the Latinos in Nevada, the whole state. And she won that state. So there's a lot of people like that who need to be identified, elevated, and put in charge of positions. And then you find the people who want to work on campaigns. A lot of people want to volunteer. They want to be involved. And they need to be trained and organized um, to be able to do that. And so that's some of the work that you've been doing. Maybe you should talk a little bit about that. It's something I've tried to you know, be helpful to is your whole you know, Blue Institute work and grooming some people. So. So the Blue Institute is a program that we launched in 2015 to exactly answer that issue, that if you look at campaigns across the South and Southwest, uh, especially in 2014, over and over again, when people were asked, do you have staff of color? The answer was, well, there's no one who can do that work. And when they did hire them, they were almost exclusively hired in field, uh, which you know, for all of the reasons, especially as a black woman from the South, being told that someone's being put in the field just sometimes rubs you the wrong way. <laughs> but the, the reality was that there, there were very few who had the experience level to be trusted by those who were in charge of campaigns with 
the complexity of running a statewide race, of running a congressional race. And so with Steve's early investment and our ability to, to raise money from some other groups, we brought in 44 people of color, uh, half Latino, half African American, uh, from the 16 southern and southwestern states. And we trained them over the course of a week and a half. They took training to become campaign managers, data directors, uh, communication directors, uh, to understand finance. And then what we were most impressed by and were most excited by, impressed is the wrong word, we were most excited by uh, the fact that we were able to work with Inclusive, the group that Steve referenced earlier. They came down and did resume training, and we actually got organizations from across the country to come and do a job fair that week. And of the 44 10 of them were hired by the end of the week, and we now have a 78% placement rate of all of our young people. Um, we're very... Yeah. And so some are working with the Bernie campaigns, some are with Hillary, some are in congressional races, and now we have become one of the data banks. We get requests, do you have any Blue Institute graduates that you can send to us? And that's been because of the work that you were willing to finance and the willingness to early on acknowledge the need to get this work done. And how much did that program cost? $152,000. And they're publicly committed $170 million in progressive and democratic spending, the majority of which is going towards negative TV ads. So, and just to, to put a fine point on it, it took us almost six months to raise that 152000 we cannot raise the money right now. We have not been able to raise the money to replicate the program uh, from the very people who have hired from within that program. Uh, because I think, I think to, to the point of Brown is the new white, while they find those who benefited from the program appreciate the training, they don't necessarily know that it's necessary because which candidates would they go and work for next? And so it becomes that cyclical problem of if you don't have the experience you can't have the job, but you can't have the job if you don't have the experience. But it's also an assumption that you should only work if you're working for a candidate of color. Uh, and that leads to my next question. There's a conversation about how to engage African-American, Latino, Asian-Americans, how to engage people of color on the operative side. Talk about the candidate side and what all of those groups, the DSCC, the DCCC, the DNC, the DLCC, the DGA, need to be doing in terms of candidate recruitment. You're trying to get me in trouble, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the clearest, most recent, most painful examples, which has happened in Maryland. So the Maryland U.S. Senate race. In the history of the United States of America, there has been one African-American woman in the U.S. Senate, just one, Carol Mosley Braun in 1992. Um, Barbara Mikulski decided to step down in uh, Maryland. Donna Edwards, African-American congresswoman, you know, community activist, extremely progressive person, stepped forward to run. Also, Chris Van Hollen, a white uh, congressman, he wanted to run. So Harry Reid, like within hours, came out for Van Halen, the very top Democrat in the U.S. Senate, put his weight and force in the path of this African-American woman. And then much of the Democratic Party establishment put its full force behind Van Halen. Those are not the things you want to do if you want to lift up a person of color. And so you, the, this is the type of, it was, a, it, was a, uh, it was rare because it was so clear of a case study around how the institutional forces came behind and replicated the racial inequalities that we've actually had within the country. So work needs to be done to identify promising candidates, get behind them early, rally and marshal resources behind them, connect them up to networks of people around the country so that they, they get known more. Um, they can actually be able to raise money more nationally in that regard. Um, and then to do for them what has been traditionally done for the 
long string of white men who've been in these different positions. And so that is not what has been happening, and certainly not what has been happening at the level and the extent um, to which it needs to happen, right? And so then in the, in the Maryland race, the Democratic Senate campaign committee was like, well, it's a primary. We can't get involved in the middle of a primary. But and they got involved in Pennsylvania in a primary. They're getting involved in uh, Florida in a primary. So when they want to, they can insert themselves. So somebody has to lift this up as a priority and shine a light on it and really force people to be able to actually put their money where their mouth is. Because right now, that's not what's happening. And we will have a significant opportunity in that regard over the next couple of months, which is a piece I just wrote um, the past couple of days around the vice presidential pick. We've never had a vice president of color in the history of this country. That's not a calculation of talent. And clearly, uh, Dan Quayle put that to rest, right? <laughs> so it's just an issue of who you, what you think the electorate will tolerate. And if you truly believe that there is an electorate which will get behind a candidate of color at the top of the ticket, or on the ticket, as we've seen in the past eight years, why wouldn't you choose one of the talented people of color to be on the vice presidential ticket? This is Amy Allison with Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. Special thanks to the Commonwealth Club of California and Georgia House Minority Leader, Representative Stacey Abrams, the amazing team at the City Club of Cleveland, Ford Foundation, and Van Jones. Democracy in Color is a project of Power Pack Plus, and this episode was produced by Lulu Matute with technical support from Anthony Hernandez in Emeryville, California. You can listen to future episodes at democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, and iTunes. If you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. Tell a friend, a colleague, or a neighbor to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. So until next time, thanks for joining us.